Today we are going to return to a, to a very old book, to a timeless book written over 19 centuries ago. The United States, by comparison, is just out of the wrapper when compared to Colossians. But we return to it today because as we read it, we hear the voice of God. You're going to need a Bible, so if you don't have one, raise your hand. And one of our ushers will put a Bible into your hand, or if you have a way to follow along, we're going to be in the book of Colossians, chapter 2, Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. Join me as I read from the English Standard Version. Verse 8 begins, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Let's pray. Lord, we come to you in prayer not just because that's what we do after we read the the text and the preacher is about to preach. We come to you because we need you. Lord, I need you. I'm keenly aware, Lord, that of many limitations, Lord, yet today... Come, it stands to me to preach the word. Lord, I pray that you would be with us by your presence as the word is preached this morning. I pray that you would power the preaching of your word so that the people of your word would be built up. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you're of a certain age, you probably have never heard of the word, it's a new word, made-up word, but it's now real, called FOMO, which means the fear of missing out, F-O-M-O, FOMO, the fear of missing out. Eric Barker of Time Magazine writes, you hear a lot about FOMO these days. In fact, the word was added to the Oxford English Dictionary in 2013. That makes it an official English word. So he goes on, what does it really mean? 
A recent study on the subject defined FOMO as the uneasy and sometimes all-consuming feeling that you're missing out. That your peers are doing in the know about or in possession of more or something better than you. Under this framing of FOMO, nearly three-quarters of young adults reported they experienced the phenomenon. Barker goes on, it's certainly not a good thing. And it leads you to check social media again and again and again so you don't feel out of the loop. So you feel like you're doing okay. So you feel like you aren't left out. Sometimes that alleviates the anxiety, he says, but often it doesn't. I would say it probably never does. And either way, it drives you to keep running around the digital hamster, hamster wheel to feel okay with yourself. FOMO might be a new term and a new word adopted by the Oxford English Dictionary, but humans, people, have been afraid of missing out for eons. Humans have been fashioning all sorts of hamster wheels to run on to feel okay about themselves long before the advent of social media. We all want to feel okay. We all want to feel better. None of us want to miss out. All of us want the assurance that we have what we, we know what we need to know. We are who we need to be. But yet, so many times, we get trapped on a hamster wheel to try to make ourselves feel better. Now, in verse 8, Paul doesn't use the word FOMO, but it's the idea is there. We can be held hostage and run around the hamster wheel of the philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition. You see, the human tradition hamster wheel we ride and ride and ride and ride is whenever we say of something, this will make me feel better about myself. We run around and around the hamster wheel when we say better health. If I have better health, I will be okay. If I have the right friends, I'll be okay. If I have enough money, I'll be okay. If I know the right people, I'll be okay. If I had good enough education, I'll be okay. If I get the appropriate respect, I'll be okay. If my family is happy enough, I'll be okay. But round and round and round and round the wheel goes and nothing and no one, nothing changes and no one feels better and everyone continues to fear missing out. The truth is, many of us are taken captive and held hostage by a belief system that says, I can do these things to make me feel better about myself. Today, Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 through 15, invites us to jump off the hamster wheel. Feeling okay, feeling okay is not enough. Today's scripture is going to offer us something of a more enduring value. Something that will do far more than make us merely feel better about ourselves for a moment. The scriptures today are going to draw our attention away from ourselves and onto someone else, onto Jesus. We are simply unable to understand who we are, who we're supposed to be, what we're supposed to do unless we first start with Jesus. The most important thing about me and the most important thing about you is not me or you. It's Jesus. We can't miss out when we have Jesus. Do you want meaning in life? 
Let's go again to Jesus. Do you want to be a part of something bigger? Let's go again to Jesus. Do you want to matter in this world? Let's go again to Jesus. Do you want to feel better, even better? Do you want to know something more about who you are and who he is? Let's go again to Jesus. You cannot miss out if you have Jesus. We'll see this in four different parts this morning. First, we we see who Jesus is. Verse 9. For in him, that's Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. In him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Now, we've made this point before from Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, but Jesus is not God Jr. He's not God in training. He's not God's Padawan learner. He is God. Because for in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. This does not mean that in some mysterious way the presence of God inhabited Jesus or inhabits Jesus. We're saying Jesus is God because he is God. He is not merely like God, similar to God, or God-like. Jesus is the whole fullness of deity. Now notice this. The reason Paul brings this back up again in verse 9 is to show us something we did not expect. Where does the whole fullness of deity dwell? Bodily. It's embodied. Now in the ancient world, kings built temples, massive and grandiose, to hold their gods. These majestic and ornate buildings constructed on a colossal scale to be larger than life was meant so that when worshipers walked in, they would look up and say, whoa, I am small. This God must be big. The Old Testament people of God had a temple too. The temple was the place where God met his people. But nowhere in the Old Testament do we ever read, for in the temple the whole fullness of deity dwells. Quite the contrary. The scriptures want to make us understand that God could never be constrained in a construction that any man could build. No construct can hold the transcendent God. Solomon, who built the first temple, he knew this. After he finished the construction and dedicated the temple in prayer, he said, but will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, Heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. The same thing is said through God, the same thing is said when God speaks through his, his, his mouthpiece, Isaiah, in, verse, in chapter 66, verse 1 of Isaiah. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? Do you see the idea there? You and I cannot build a building that can hold God. But what we see in verse 9 is something powerful. Verse 9, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Deity is now embodied in Jesus. No building has ever held the whole fullness of his deity, but now his deity dwells bodily. Past Christians, isn't that, it's just fascinating to know, you walk in a building, you look up and say, wow, this is amazing. Now, instead of going to a building and saying, wow, my God is big, we see the power of God as, as he became one of his creatures. Now the whole fullness 
of his deity dwells bodily, not just for the time he did ministry on earth, but when he died and rose again, he continues to inhabit a body. And the whole fullness of deity dwells, dwells bodily. Past generations of Christians had a much harder time understanding this than we do. And I think that's to our shame. But Colossians chapter 2, verse 9 is clear. Jesus is the whole fullness of deity embodied. Now, who cares? What's the point? Next we see Jesus fills. Verse 10 is one of those sentences in the Bible that we can read in just a second, but not completely grasp. Let's look at it. Verse 9, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him. And you have been filled in him. Seven little words that hold so much. Get the flow here. Jesus is God. No question about it. No doubt about it. He is God embodied. And you have been filled in him. Does that mean that we are divine as well? No. But he's saying something we had better pay close attention to. He's not saying that we are filled by him but we are filled because we are in him. He's speaking not of a gas tank. You know, it's not as if you go to a gas tank and say, fill up on pump three. I'll take all of Jesus that you can give me. That's not the idea. What he's saying is, you have been filled. You have been filled in him. It would be much more natural to say you have been filled with him. But the idea here is not filling as much as it's union, as as much as it is connection. Paul is drawing our eyes to the point to the fact that we are connected to him. None of us can lay claim to deity this morning, but all of us can claim and say, those here are Christians, that I am so closely associated with Jesus that I am in him. He is inseparable from me. We are inseparable from him. Now we're going to continue to explore what this means. But one thing we can say right now is that any philosophy, teaching, belief, preference, or conviction that takes you away from focusing on Jesus is wrong. Now here's the tricky thing. Your preferences might not be wrong in themselves. Your convictions might be spot on. But if they move you away from Jesus, you're not holding them rightly. Is there anything in your life more important to you than Jesus? Education, literacy, environment, whether to vaccinate or not, money, government, politics, diet. If any of those things displace Jesus in your life, those things are not being held correctly. We are in Him. We have been filled in Him. We're not going to miss out if we stay close to Jesus. We have been filled in Him. Look at verse 10 again. And you have been filled in Him. I don't want to give a grammar lesson for two reasons. One, it would be super boring. And two, I'm not very good at grammar. But I even know this. That when we read in verse 10, And you have been filled... That you is not singular, just like just me or just you. That you is plural. So if you're from Texas, it could go, and y'all have been filled in him. 
Or if you're from Philly, you could say, and you guys have been filled in him. But the idea here is that verse 10, the you there is plural. The you is plural. This is one of the many places where the scriptures so clearly show that Christianity does not make sense in isolation. All real believers must be knit into a particular church. Have you ever heard people say, well, the Bible nowhere commands Christians to be a part of a church? That's nonsense. That's like saying the Bible doesn't command us to breathe. Why? Because if we, do, if we, if we don't breathe, we die. It's so basic, you don't need to command the basic or the obvious, and the scriptures present Christians connected to other Christians. To be faithful, Christians must be knit into other Christians in a particular church. Paul wants us to know, though, that Jesus, though he is head of the church, he's not just some kind of weak little regional manager. Look at what he goes on to say in verse 10. And you have been filled in him. He is the head of all rule and authority. So we are filled. We are in him. And he is the one who has all rule and authority over all things. Jesus is. Jesus fills. And we are in Jesus. This is who we are. Look again at verse 11. Or look, look at verse 11. In him you were, also, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Now that is a hard right turn. It feels like if you're in the car with Paul and you're going along one way, all of a sudden he goes, and then you hit the side of the, of the door and you're like, whoa, Paul, why in the world would you come out here and talk about circumcision when you were just talking about Jesus being Jesus being divine and us being in him. It's not every day you go from talking about the deity of Christ to circumcision. Why would he do this? Here's why. In the Old Testament, circumcision was that physical sign from God that marked his people out as different and unique from everyone else. It was the sign that all males bore on their body that they belonged to God above. That sign does not apply today. Verse 11 shows us that there is a different kind of circumcision, a circumcision made without hands that associates God's people, that marks God's people out as unique and different. In fact, he takes the image and says Christ was circumcised. To put it succinctly, we are circumcised through Christ's circumcision. That is his death. Christ. Christ's circumcision is more than just cutting a bit of flesh, but a sacrifice of his entire body. So when Paul says, in him also you were circumcised, we can say, now what marks us apart is different is his death. We are marked by his death. Do You see how this is much more different, much deeper than just saying Jesus died for my sins. That is wonderfully true. That is right. But there is more. He died for us to be sure but also, also we are in him. And so it can be said, when he died, we died. Woodhouse says, John, Christ's death was so effectively for us that it was our death. We are so in him that when he died on the cross, we can say, we died too. We died too. His death was our death. And that's not all. The association continues. Look at verse 12 having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. 
Look how closely we're associated with this one who has fullness of deity. When he died, we died. When he was buried, we were buried. When he was raised, we were raised. This is why we say you're not missing out if you're with Jesus. If you stick close to Jesus, you are not going to be able to understand who you are or what you're to do or who you're to be if you do not first understand the nature of your association with Jesus. Jesus is God. Jesus fills us. We are in Jesus. And there's one more move in our progression. We're alive with him. Verse 13. And you, that's plural again, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Now, to be dead in the Bible does not mean that your body is a corpse. The dead are those who have no relationship with God. In him is life. Apart from him is death. And so God made, if you're alive, if you're a Christian, God is the one who made you alive. God made you alive on his own, by himself. God acted on you to make you alive and unite you with Jesus. Let's be real clear. We're not made alive by praying a prayer, raising a hand, signing a card, being baptized, going to church, believing good things, getting religion, but we're made alive by God. He has made us alive. And you have been made alive, what does it say? With him. With him. With who? With him. With him. We're not just alive on our own. We're alive with him. Who is the him we're alive with? Jesus. So if Jesus did not rise from the dead, we would not be alive. We can say we live because Jesus lives. We're not just alive, untethered from nothing, like untethered from anything, like free agents doing whatever we want to do, going wherever we want to go. We're alive because he's alive. We're alive with somebody. We're alive with him. We are alive with him. We were once dead, and now we are fully and finally forgiven. But watch. I want you to see how he describes forgiveness here in verse 14 is the how of forgiveness. How does he forgive? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So what did he do? And we can be tempted to think that our sins, he treated our sins as if we didn't sin. That's not what he did. We can be tempted to think that our sins are somehow imaginary, that's not what it is. What did he, the guilt is real. The shame is justified. What did he do? Actually, there is a record of our debt that stood against us. Our sins, there's a document, a record that has every single, every single thing that we ever did. It is, it is a record that marks off all of our thoughts, all of our deeds, all of our words, all of our intentions. Every word spoken in anger, every thought baked in lust, every unspoken bitterness, every unsavory action, every vain imagination is recorded in excruciating detail. Nothing was missed. 
That record has been kept. And it has legal demands. And the legal demand says guilty. This one, this one described by this record, that person must be punished. Guilty. Now, let's take a step back. If you imagined, if you could know that there was a document about you like this, what would you do to get, your, get a hold of it? You'd do anything. You wouldn't want it to hit the light of day. You would not want it to fall in the wrong hands. You'd want to hide that document away in some dark corner somewhere that only you would know about. But here's the problem. How can you hide something from God? You can't. And hiding it doesn't make it false. That's no way to deal with sin. Hide it. Put it to the side. We need something better than a good hiding place. And that's what we have in Jesus. What did he do? He canceled, verse 14, canceled the record of debt. Canceled kind of a weak word. He obliterated the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. The record of all of our wrongdoing was destroyed. When? When was it destroyed? Well, this he set aside, that record of debt against all of us, when? Nailing it to the cross. When was the record of debt against you that has legal demands that say you are guilty? When was that destroyed? It was destroyed when Jesus was destroyed. Now tell me that doesn't give us just a bit of sweetness in the death of Jesus Christ. All the evidence that would have been used to ensure your guilt, the document that, with, that, that withheld nothing about anything you did, all of your thoughts and actions and deeds, that document was nailed to the cross right alongside Jesus. And so when he was destroyed, all evidence against you was destroyed as well. Your guilt was canceled. The record of debt was canceled. Were the sins real? Yes. But the records are gone. Justice demands that we die. But Jesus died in our place. See, we can look at the cross and think, well, I'm glad Jesus died for me. He did. But he also died to clear your record. There is now no sin, if you're a Christian, there is no sin that stands to speak against you. There is no document in existence that can say, hey, Rich, he's a bad guy because of this, 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 and this. Oh, I know I'm a bad guy. I know I've got sins. My sins, they were real. But the record of them is gone. Wiped away. Canceled. How canceled? So canceled. It so canceled the record of our debt that stood against us with its legal demands is so canceled that no power in all the universe could find those records of wrong. Those that might have been disarmed. Look at verse 15. And he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing, triumphing over them in him. In Jesus, he was God triumphed and put Satan to shame. Now, Satan, what does Satan mean? That word means accuser. His primary, because 
The reason his name is accuser is because that's what he does all the time to Christians. He accuses. He accuses you and he accuses me. The problem is, he's so good at this, he doesn't pick up on things that we didn't do. He picks up on things we did do and he accuses us and makes us feel like, oh my gosh, we're going to pay for that. Satan is the accuser of the brothers and sisters. And he's able to fashion all manner of accusatory fiery darts and zing them at us. The darts hurt, but they can do no lasting damage because he's been disarmed. Why has he been disarmed? Because the record of our debt has been destroyed. Forgiveness is not just God going, oh, well, we'll just pretend like that didn't happen. No. Forgiveness is not the redefinition of sin to not sin. Forgiveness is looking at that document with everything we've ever done and destroying it when, you just, when he destroyed Jesus. It's not that we didn't sin. It's that in Christ's death, there is no longer any evidence of our sin. There is no longer, then, any evidence of sin for us to pay for. How much better is the cancellation of our sins than the hiding or covering up of the record of our sins? Where could you hide the record of your sin? Where could you hide the record of your wrongdoing from God, the infinite one? Where could you hide them? There is no place. With apologies to Psalm 139, if you hid the record, your record of debts in the heavens, he could find them there. If you took on the wings of mourning to hide your record of debt in the uttermost parts of the sea, he could find them there. If you covered your record of debt with darkness, he could see it. If you could charter a ship and zoom off and deposit the record of debt in distant galaxies, he could find them there. If you could burrow a deep hole in a mountain and put tons and tons and tons of rock, he could still find that debt there. If you could commission a legion of angels with flaming swords to watch over your record of debt, he could destroy them. He did something better than hiding or pretending like we didn't sin. You see, when Jesus cried, it is finished, he was talking about his life, but also he was talking about our debt. You know what that means? We owe nothing. We owe nothing because when God destroyed Jesus, he destroyed your record of debt. Now there is nothing that cries out against you, Christian, guilty. How can we have fear of missing out when we have a Savior like this and a promise like that? How can we have fear of missing out when we're so forcefully forgiven, so personally forgiven? This isn't just a general category. Each sin recorded, each document written, each document, if you're a Christian, destroyed when Jesus was destroyed. Which hamster wheel are you on? Maybe you're here and you're not following Jesus and you're not a Christian. And you know, no one has to tell you you've done things wrong. 
Not only do you know, I need to tell you, the Lord knows. You can try to find happiness and relief all kinds of other places, but you will not. You will only find relief in Him. If you want your record of debt canceled so that nothing stands against you, come to Jesus. Trust in Him. At His death, He destroyed the record of wrongs for all His people. We don't need to be on the hamster wheel of better health, right friends, enough money, a good education, appropriate respect, or a happy family. We miss nothing when we have Jesus. Not one thing. Not one thing. I'll leave us with one thought as we consider the greatness of our debt being canceled. If He canceled the record of our debts, and we see here in Colossians chapter 2, verse 14, that He did. If He canceled the record of our many debts, do we have a right to record and keep the debts of others? No. We have no right. This is not to ignore or make light of any person who's been sinned against and sinned against greatly. But he has destroyed the record on you. We have no right to take that record on others and carry it around with us. None. Christian, what have you done? What do you feel guilty for? Look to Jesus. Look to his death. What do you feel like you might be punished with? No, no, no. The punishment has been spent on Jesus. The record has been destroyed. Stick close to him and you will not miss out. Let's pray. Lord, bless us all. It's one thing to hear that we're forgiven, Lord, but I pray that you would minister to us and help us to know it. I pray, Lord, that you would help us each. Lord, I don't know the state of every soul in this room, but I pray that you, if there are any here who are not regenerated, who are not in you, I pray that there would be a burning desire to turn from sins and take the record of wrong and bring it to you. Pray for the, us in the room who are Christians, Lord. I pray that we would not fear missing out when we, have, when we have you, Jesus. We will not miss out on anything except punishment for what we've done. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to be confident in our association with you. There is no longer any punishment for sins. Jesus was destroyed, and our record of sin was destroyed right along with him. Thank you. Thank you for not treating us as our sins deserve. Thank you for destroying the record. Lord, help us not to take this for granted. 
Help us to be a people, a church that revels in the fact that though our sins were real, are real, will be real, we will not pay for them because our Savior died and the record has been destroyed. In Jesus' name, amen.